Welcome to the Crosswalk Community Church Podcast. Over the next several weeks, as you saw, we're going to be in a series called We Can Be Heroes. It takes a look at different people throughout Scripture that God has called to do extraordinary things and what it is that we can learn from both who they are and from what they were able to accomplish with God's power behind them. So taking examples from people of the Bible and applying it to your own life is a hallmark of Christian theology. Most sermons deal somewhat with that in some way. And there is a lot to be learned from these amazing and, more importantly, true stories of these people. Today, specifically, we're going to elaborate a lot on God's calling on you. And what I mean by that is outside of just your daily responsibilities as a Christian, sometimes God places a specific calling on yourself to do something for his kingdom, whether that be as simple as leading a ministry or branching out more in your church, joining a worship team, or traveling to another country and ministering to people or doing, you never really know, but that's what we're talking about today. What we're going to try to focus on is that when God calls me to do something, what does that look like? How do I deal with that and stuff like that? And we're going to take Gideon and take his life and the call that God placed on him and try to use that to better understand when God calls us. So we're talking about Gideon today. Gideon was the fifth judge of Israel. So we're in the book of Judges today. If you do not know, at this time, Israel has been freed from bondage from Egypt. They wandered in the desert 40 years. Joshua has led them into the promised land. They are entrenched now in that area. Each tribe has their own specific area or whatever. And they are in this process of, of a certain cycle that we're going to get into um, really shortly here of where they keep getting conquered by these other nations and then God would call a judge to liberate them and free them and, and basically set the nation right. Gideon is the fifth judge. If you, when you think of judges, you think of Samson. Samson's the famous one. Gideon's before him. So we're not quite to that point yet. But Gideon has a lot of traits with a lot that he shares a lot of similarities with a lot of other judges. And so specifically today, how it's going to go is I'm, there's about two chapters in, in Judges that talks about Gideon. I'm going to read some, ver, you know, some uh, chapters verse by verse. We'll go through those sections. I'm going to skip over some because I don't want to keep you here and then you forget everything I said because that would be silly. Um, and then we're going to look at Gideon's life and see what happens in his life with how God calls him, and then we're going to apply that to our life. So it's going to go scripture, we're going to look at a life event in Gideon's life, and then we're going to take a point from that and apply it to our life. Sound simple, right? Okay, so we're in Judges chapter 6 at the very first verse. If you have your Bible, read along. I think it's on the screen. If not, just listen to my husky voice, and I'll read it for you. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. We're at verse 3. I'm going to go to verse 6. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So we're not even to Gideon yet, and we already have an event that we can take a point from and learn from it. And the first 
point or the first uh, event that we can see in Judges is that Gideon is going to continue this relationship cycle in the book of Judges between Israel and between God. Now, what, what do I mean by that? This cycle this, that talks about the relationship between the two has four stages to it. The first stage of this cycle is called apostasy. Now, what in the world is apostasy? Apostasy is just a fancy way of saying you willingly throw away your faith. You willingly disregard it. You turn to something different. And as we see in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. So Israel has done that. They've committed apostasy. This is not the first time they've done this, as the cycle is all the way through the book of Judges. So the second part of the cycle is called servitude. What happens is Israel throws away their faith. God punishes them by allowing them to be conquered and oppressed by another nation. And as we saw in verse 1-2, it's also, this time, the nation of Midian. The third, the third part of the cycle is called supplication. That's when Israel realizes, we done screwed up, we're really sorry, and they cry out to God for help. Please free us from this mess that we got ourselves in, that you did nothing whatsoever wrong in any way. It is our fault. Please help us. And as we see in verse 6, uh, the people of Israel cried out for help for the Lord. That's where we're at right now. And then as you'll see, the last section of this cycle is called salvation. That's when God calls a judge to come and liberate Israel from the nation that is oppressing them. And then the cycle repeats itself. So right, we're right at the end of supplication and salvation. So what does this mean? What, what, does, this, what does this do for me, Patrick? I want to know how can I help and fix my life. Well, this shows us that oftentimes there is a greater goal to your calling beyond yourself. Remember, we're talking about God's calling on you. God calls you to do something. Oftentimes, there's more to it than just how it's going to affect you. What I mean by that is that there's two parts to every calling, okay? When God calls you, there's the effect it has on you, but then there's the effect that your calling is going to have on other people. There's examples of this in the Old Testament as well. Look at Moses. When Moses was called by God to go back to liberate his people, he was out. He had been exiled from Egypt. He was out living. He was married, had a family. He was living with his father, father-in-law Jethro. He was a shepherd. God calls him and says, "Go back and free my people." So obviously, it, his calling affected Moses because he reconnected with his people and his God. But at the same time, Moses's calling obviously had effects on other people because he freed the nation of Israel. Right? They were affected by him answering his call. Another example is Jonah. Jonah was called by God to go witness to the people. The Assyrians at Nineveh, the Assyrians were really nasty people. If you did not know this, a lot of the modern forms of torture that we have today originate by some form or another with the Assyrians. So they were probably not somebody you would go out to dinner with. So Jonah was scared. He, he ran away. So the, the calling had effect on him because he witnessed God's long-suffering and his patient love, not only with himself, but with the nation of Assyria as well, because they were like this for so long, God was patient with them, calls Jonah to go witness to them. And as if you read Jonah, at the end, he does do that. So therefore, his calling affects other people beyond himself. So we see that, that God is often associated with greater things, things like, even like put it in a verb, put it in a way that you can understand it. He's associated with things like weaving and with molding. And if you ever weave something or, or molded something, these processes take time. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's the same way with your calling. More likely than not, your calling isn't going to be an instantaneous thing. It's going to be a journey. It's going to be God calls you, and, and you're in the process of doing what it is God has asked you to do. So that means, more than likely, it's going to affect other people. And the way that God does this is when you're weaving, you know, you're bringing in new strands as you're weaving 
other strands, you're, you got to remember your pattern over, under, under, over. What, I don't know anything about weaving, so if I'm wrong, just call me out on it. And then also when you're molding. So if you're molding clay, I remember doing this in art class. I was terrible at it. Shocker. As you're molding clay, you got to bring in more material, but you have to keep the moisture right. You can't let it dry out too much. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on here. What this shows is that God has a way of intertwining our calling with other people's callings as well. Don't think for a second that if God calls you to do something, you're the only person on the planet that God's calling at that moment because you're probably not. There's a lot of people in the world. Um, so what he's going to do is he is efficient in the means of how can he maximize the effect of your calling to further his kingdom to the greatest degree. Well, sometimes that's going to be taking your calling and mixing it with somebody else's calling because the two of you, for whatever reason, maybe you mesh well together, maybe you're best buds, whatever, and it's going to affect the most amount of people that that's what he wants to further his kingdom the best that he can. And as we'll see, that Gideon's calling has an effect on him, both personally good and bad, but also you're going to see that obviously as a judge, his calling has an effect on others because he liberates the nation of Israel. God has this way of doing this because he is from a timeless perspective. He has a different perspective on things than we do. So we're not always going to be able to understand what he has in store for us at the beginning um, because when God calls us, we don't have the whole picture. He already does. So that leads to a difference in perspective, which leads to us not maybe fully understanding what he's trying to do here. So as we're going to see, Gideon's calling, he's going to liberate Israel, which means that your calling, more often than not, will have an effect beyond yourself. And back in chapter 6, now we're going to go to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat... Okay, really fast. This is Old Testament. There are names and phrases in here that are really hard to say. Um, I apologize ahead of time if I offend anybody who has any sort of Middle Eastern descent or anything like that. I've already taken sensitivity training in preparation for this, so please... Just forgive me if I butcher these names, okay? Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So I'm going to stop right there. Right there, we already have our first, uh, another um, life event about Gideon. He, Gideon was called while being oppressed, okay? We learned from the cycle that Israel at this moment is under oppression by the nation of Midian. And it's so bad that Gideon is threshing wheat in a pit meant for grapes. A wine press was a pit normally carved out of rock, and then you would process your grapes in there to get the wine from it. You threshed wheat on an open floor or out in the open in an open field. The reason you did that was because the wind would carry the chaff away and it would do half the work for you. So you didn't thresh wheat in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a hole in the ground. It's not very easy to do, but the reason he's doing this is as we read, anytime the Israelites came out of the mountains to try to plant or um, cultivate any crops, the Midianites would come and destroy everything. The, the verbiage used is locusts. I mean, that gives you a kind of picture of what they were like. That's how bad he was being oppressed at this time. So what does that mean for us? That means that God often calls us when our circumstances aren't ideal, right? Very often, God tells us to do something, and we're like, can it wait, like, next week when I get paid, or, you know, when stuff's going on that isn't so bad right now in my life? And it's funny, there's a cool contrast to be had with how that is admired in the world. They say you don't truly know somebody until you know someone under pressure, right? They say you see somebody's true self when they're under duress. And the ability to perform under pressure is admired in the world. It's, it's, act, it's sought after, right? Um, my, a good example is my boss at work. He, he has to deal, his job is very stressful. He has to deal with all these drivers who are 
uh, crabbing and complaining about everything. And I looked to him one time and I said, right, I looked to him one time and I said, how do you deal with all this stress? I mean, it would just melt me. I'd be like butter. And he says, oh, I, lo- I love it. I live for it. It makes me, it makes me more efficient. It, I may, it's a better person. It's just who I am. I just love the stress. Uh, another example is anyone who knows anything about sports, right? A hallmark of a great athlete is his ability to perform in the postseason. That usually separates the best athletes from, from the other ones is how well do you do when the stakes are on the line? And if you lose, you go home. How well do you do then? So why is the world, why does the world admire your ability to perform under pressure? But then at the same time, so why does God call us when we're always under pressure, when our lives either financially or physically or whatever? When God calls us to do something, a lot of times it's when we're not at our best. Why does he do that? Does he, does he want us to show off? Does he want us to be admired because look at what we did when things weren't going so well? Well, that doesn't really make sense because as Christians, we believe that we all come from God, that everything we are is because God has given us that. So us wanting to show off doesn't really make a lot of sense. So why does he do this? Remember, everything we do, our main purpose is to bring him glory, correct? You have to think of yourself as a vessel for the Holy Spirit. His, his spirit and his glory is shown through you, right? You're just... You're just a tool to be used, basically. So why does God do this? Why does he call us, usually when our lives are pretty crappy? Because as Christians, if we're doing our jobs correctly, all right, if we're spreading God's love and truth throughout the world, and we are called by him to do what he asks, people will, it's already been established that it affects other people, right? We already talked about that in the first point. So if you're doing what God has called you to do, your calling is going to affect others, and that means people are going to take notice. They're going to notice you doing what you're doing. When people see you doing God's work, no matter what garbage is going on in your life, people will notice things. And when they notice things, they comment on things, usually on social media, unfortunately. When people comment on things, they become further curious about them. And when people become further curious about things, they seek answers. So when people are affected by you doing your calling for God, even when your life is terrible in other, in other matters, they're going to come to you in one form or another and ask you, how are you able to do this? How are you able to do what you're doing? I know your life's pretty crappy. I know you don't have any money. I know you just got out of the hospital. How are you doing this? This puts you, right, in the glorious position of doing what every follower of Jesus Christ seeks so earnestly to do. Put the glory on him, right? So that's the difference between cool under pressure in the world. It's a matter of pride. The world says that's something to be admired about yourself. But as a Christian, you realize and understand that I'm only able to do this because God has allowed me to do it and given me the strength to do it, which gives the glory to him. So the worse off you are when you start this journey, and yet you're still able to accomplish it, how much more glory is going to go to him if you do your job correctly and give it to him? Make sense? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. All right, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. 
please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. We're going to stop right there. As you're going to see, the, uh, the point before and these next two are connect pretty closely. They, talk, they deal specifically with you and your calling and how it affects you. And our life event from this that we see is that Gideon doubted his capability. He doubted his ability to be able to do what God asked him to do. So much so that he asked God himself for a specific sign to prove that he found favor in him. That's a pretty crazy thing to do, but that's how much he doubted his capability of being able to do this, right? What does that teach us? That teaches us that doubt, I'm talking about self-doubt, doubt doubt in yourself, okay? Let me make that distinction very clear. I'm not talking about doubt as as in a doubt of faith, doubt in God or Jesus. I'm not talking about that at all. The Bible is very clear on that. I'm talking about doubt in yourself, in your own abilities. In and of itself is not bad, as God supplements your doubt with strength. What I'm trying to say is that this is a normal response, okay? Everybody feels this. There are plenty of examples throughout Scripture where God's immediate presence or his instruction is met with misunderstanding and reluctance. You want some more examples? You can go back to Moses. When Moses was called by the burning bush, God says, go back to Egypt, free my people. What does Moses say? Somebody else. I can't talk very good. You must find somebody else, right? Or look to Jonah. Doubt is self-doubt is the precursor to anxiety and fear. Jonah was so scared of his mission that he ran away. He went the complete opposite direction. He self-doubted his capability and what he was able to do with God's calling. A great example is probably Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, right? He was the priest. He was in the temple. The archangel Gabriel himself comes before Zechariah and says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be the forerunner of the one who will save us all. You guys know the story, right? What does Zechariah do? The archangel Gabriel is standing in front of him like, okay, pretend Tom's Gabriel. I'm Zechariah. Yeah, everyone wave hi to Gabriel. He's standing before me, right? He says, you're going to have a son. What does Zechariah say? Nope. Can't happen. I'm too old. My wife, she's barren. We, we don't have no children. He says that right to him. He's made mute because of his own disbelief and self-doubt and his capability of able to do it. So what I'm trying to say is that when you have doubt in yourself, if you feel God calling you, and you're not sure if it's God or not because you're, you're, you're telling yourself, there's no way I should doubt this because if it was God, there's no way that's possible. I'm telling you it's normal. It's, it's a normal response. These so-called pillars of faith that we look to had moments, usually at the initial response, of self-doubt. They doubted their own ability to do this. Doubt is a normal initial response and is evidence of our diminutive stature compared to God. He calls upon us. And often we don't immediately and fully understand or even comprehend what he's saying, which makes sense when you consider the difference in nature between us and God. Self-doubt is a sign of that difference. God is here. You are here. You can never forget that. You will always have a different perspective than him because of his timeless perspective outside of things. He sees all things at once. We do not. So oftentimes when God calls us to do something, we think, there is no way I am capable of doing this. What is wrong with you? There's no way. You asked the wrong person. So we initially doubt. And I'm telling you that that's normal. It's normal when God places that calling on you, and that's the point. Because you're lacking, that self-doubt creates a void in you that has to be filled with something else. God fills that void with his strength, which allows you to accomplish his calling. Kind of makes sense how this works, right? So remember our last point. Gideon doubted because of his circumstance. He didn't feel that 
he was being oppressed. So he was, his life was in the worst possible moment when God was calling him. When we, how when we answer God's call, when life already has us down, puts more glory on him when we succeed. This point is the fuel for the previous one. Think of it as the gas to the engine. God's strength is how we are able to accomplish his call. So let's look at the order, right? God calls us. We doubt ourselves because our lacking in capability in our current circumstance. And then God supplants your doubt with his strength. And then release the hounds, something like that. You know, you're off and ready to go, right? So we're going to skip ahead really fast to chapter 7, starting at verse 2, and I'm going to go to verse 8. Judges chapter 7, verse 2. And I'm going to go to verse 8. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So Gideon's been called by God to save Israel. He gathers Israel's army, and he's about to engage the, 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 the Midianite army. He has 32,000 men. God says, no, 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 no. That's too many. You don't need that many people. And through whatever process he decided, God his army down from 32,000 to 300. The Midianite army was around 135,000. I'm not very good at math, but 300, much less 32,000, is a lot less than 135,000 people, right? It's pretty simple math. But what do we see? What you're going to see, if you kept reading, is our next life event, or in in Gideon's calling, is that Gideon's outnumbered army triumphs. He wipes the floor with the Midianites. It's not even close. It's just crazy people. With 300 men, he defeats an army of 135,000. What is that, like 20 to 1 or something like that? I don't know. I'm not terrible at math. I keep trying to do it, and I should stop. So what does this teach us? This shows that God's calling can overcome any obstacle. So we are on the last part, three points that connect closely together, right? Your circumstances are pretty crappy. You doubt your capability. God calls you anyways, you have that self-doubt with yourself. He fills that doubt with his strength. You're in because God gives you the strength to do it, right? God calls. We doubt ourselves. He supplies us with his strength. This is the outcome. We achieve his goal. His calling is completed. His kingdom is furthered. This point is the resolution of the other two. You find yourself capable of doing things you never thought you could because your strength comes from a source greater than yourself. You speak on, think of, earthly things, earthly fears, earthly limits, earthly obstacles, whatever, everything of this earth has no power over divine calling. Why? Because the same God who gives you that strength is the same God who created everything. And you see examples of this throughout Scripture. 
the same strength that is in you is the same strength that parted the Red Sea. It's the same strength that put the ten plagues on the Egyptians. It's the same strength that tore down the walls of Jericho. It's the same strength that apparently is flame retardant and keeps you alive inside an oven. It's the same strength that created everything, but most of all, it's the same strength that rose a man from the dead. That is inside of you. And that self-doubt that you had at the beginning, God just takes that void and fills it with his strength, which is why when you accomplish his calling, you give glory to God because you couldn't do it without him. That's why he gets it. It's rightfully his. That's how that works. I didn't want to just say here today, glory goes to God because he's God. That's true, and that works for me, but let's try to elaborate that a little bit. Glory goes to God because he's the only reason you're able to accomplish anything in this life. Because it's his strength that fills that void of self-doubt. We are So as you see, God's strength supplants your doubt and you are able to accomplish his calling. And we see that Gideon did that. He freed the nation of Israel from the Midianites, right? But we are imperfect creatures and we still take something like God's calling and screw it all up. It usually comes towards the end of the calling. And oftentimes it doesn't deal with, God ask, with what God asks of you to do. It deals with us throwing our own junk into it, right? And we're going to see that Gideon makes this same mistake. He's completing that cycle that you see throughout Judges. So now we're going to skip to chapter 8 in Judges, starting at verse 4. And I'm going to go to 21. I'm going to read speed read really fast. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing So he said to the men of Sakoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zaboth and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sakoth said, Are the hands of Zaboth and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zaboth and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sakoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. What the men of Sakoth said to him is the biblical example of sarcasm. Okay, It's really hard to tell nowadays because we see sarcasm as something totally different. But there is sarcasm in the Bible, and that was some bits of it. Verse 10, Now Zabon and Zemunah were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for they had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nabal and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zabal and Zemunah fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zabal and Zemunah, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Sakoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sakoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sakoth and said, Behold, Zabal and Zamuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zabal and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Again, more sarcasm. And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briers, and with them taught the men of Sakoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Gideon did that, not the other two. Then he said to Zabal and Zamuna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are. Are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you have saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zabal and Zamunah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, as the man is, so is his strength. 
And Gideon arose and killed Zebal and Zimuna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Okay, so that was a lot. But basically what happens is Gideon's freed Israel from, Midianite, from the Midianite army, but he's still pursuing them because he wants the kings. Because of what the kings did, they killed some of his brothers. So now it's, it's become a personal vendetta. And what we see, this life event that we see, is that Gideon oversteps his calling. The Midianite army is on the run, and Gideon continues after them even, even after that. And what he does is he goes through two different towns, Sakoth and Penuel, and threatens them because they do not supply his army with food. And eventually he goes back and kills the people of those cities. And then also he kills the kings of Midian over personal vengeance because of what they did to his family. If you, I know I read pretty fast, but if you notice an example, look at this section of verses compared to the section of verses that deal with Gideon defeating the Midian army at the onset where he reduced his army. Notice how God is lacking in this chapter. He's not mentioned once. I think the only time he's mentioned is Gideon says, as the Lord lives. But God himself is not mentioned once in this chapter. And there's, that's a point to be made because both chapters feature Gideon achieving victory. But in chapter 8, it's more of Gideon on a personal vendetta, which is not warranted in a holy war. What I mean by that is that God called Gideon and the Israel, to free the Israelites from the Midianites through the means of military warfare. Okay, That's what you would call a holy war. This whole personal vendetta comes after that. Gideon is overstepping his calling. He's, he's taking it one step too far, you could say. So what does this teach us? Don't allow self-righteousness to poison an obedient heart. God's calling feels great, right? I'm not really an emotional guy, but I'll tell you that when I feel God telling me to do something, I get nervous as crap, and I can't, I don't even know what to do. I'm just kidding. No, it feels great. It feels wonderful, right? It's like I have a direct purpose and, and ability to further the kingdom, but that can cause overzealousness. A great example of that in Scripture is the Ark of the Covenant. As the Israelites were entering the Promised Land, there oftentimes God would specifically tell them to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. When the Israelites did that, again, they wiped the floor with anybody they faced. Well, there's also times that the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant into battle when God did not tell them to. And what happened then? The Israelites lost tremendously. And oftentimes, the Ark was taken by the opposing nation like some pirate's bounty, and they eventually would have to get it back. What's funny is, how many of you guys seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Raise your hands. My favorite movie of all time. If you don't like it, don't talk to me anymore. I'm just kidding. <laughs> In that movie, if you're not familiar with it, okay, the U.S. government tasks Indiana Jones. He has to go find the Ark of the Covenant because Hitler wants to use it and to, for the Nazis to win the war, right? And there's this scene in the movie where he, Indiana's briefing the, these government agents, right? And he takes out this old textbook, and he shows this picture of the Israelites holding the Ark of the Covenant in this battle. And the army's just, the opposing army's just bowing. They're like, they're not even trying anymore because they see that there's just, the power of God is literally flowing out of this thing, Right? Well, what they never tell you about is, is Hitler never would have won even if he found the ark because any time the ark was used without God's direct uh, direction or, or permission, you lost tremendously. It was just crazy. And that's kind of what I'm talking about here is that God's calling is, is something for you to achieve or something for you to accomplish. It's not for you to take and make it your own. It's, it's what God directs you to do. Don't allow overzealousness to poison or rob you of your obedience. Because remember, there's other people's lives here at stake. Your calling, as we saw in the first point, has a greater purpose beyond yourself. There's people who will be affected by it. So you don't want to do it the wrong way. God's calling demands obedience, right? Obedience demands humility. 
Self-righteousness is the antithesis of humility. I've never known anyone to be obedient to anything without first being humbled. It's really hard to do that because to be obedient is to take a command and to carry it out. Well, if you don't have humility, you will not treat that command as a command. You'll disregard it because you feel like there is something else you can do instead. So obedience requires humility. They go hand in hand. You can't accomplish one without the other. And that applies also to God's calling. So we're going to skip ahead to verse 22. We're winding down Gideon's story here now. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It's a great start, but it doesn't happen. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from, your, from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And, he answered, and they answered him, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the earrings of threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. What does this show us? This shows us that Gideon breaks God's law and he succumbs to power. So Gideon begins correctly by saying, no, I'm not going to rule over you. That's for God to do and, and, and God alone. But as we see, that doesn't last because they keep relenting and, and the nation keeps pressing Gideon to be their ruler. And finally, he gives in. And what he does is he makes an ephod. An ephod was an ornate ceremonial garment worn by the high priest to use to inquire of God. Mosaic law specifically states there was only to be one, and it was only to be in the main of Israel. Well, Gideon makes another one and puts it in his own city. So he directly breaks Mosaic law. So let's go back to relationship cycle that we talked about in the first point. Even though we're at the end of salvation, because it says there was rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, apostasy has already started. So this cycle is already starting to repeat itself. So what does this mean for us? This is the last thing that I will give you before I release the hounds to, to go about your daily lunch routine. God's calling to you is exactly that, his calling. In this scenario and in any scenario, you are the servant. When we forget our place in our relationship with God, we tend to elevate our status from that of servant. And you cannot do that. Look to Gideon again as an example. His initial denial, then eventual compliance with ruling over Israel. Gideon, as a judge, was called to lead Israel from bondage, but he is leading at the command of God to do so. He is still the servant. What is needed, as we discussed last point, what is needed to accomplish God's calling? Obedience, which requires humility. To be a servant is to humbly obey what your master asks of you. Before you can do that, you have to recognize and understand that you are the servant. In order to be a servant, you must first know that you are the servant. Continual self-examination is required to accomplish what God calls of you. I say continual because, again, look to Gideon. He accomplished a great deal. He defeats this Midianite army. He kills both the kings. He does all this great stuff. He liberates Israel. So at the beginning, it's real easy. Stuff's going great. It's easy to forget your place in this relationship when things are going well. But you must remember that it is the mindset of a servant that you are supposed to take because eventually he makes another ephod, which is violation of God's law. 
the eventual acceptance or at least compliance with Israel's worship toward him shows that Gideon forgot his place in the relationship. He no longer thought of himself as a servant. We're talking again about the difference between you and God. He is here. You are here always. Okay? You are never equal with God. I don't mean to sound be callous when I say that because God is loving and, and he is forever your eternal father. But when you make yourself on God's equal level, you are longer in the mindset of a servant, and you can't accomplish his calling when you don't first understand that. To be a servant, you must know that you are a servant. So as we're closing here, let's review that cycle one more time. The first one is apostasy. Israel falls away from God, and he begin, and begins idolatrous worship. Then servitude comes in. Israel is conquered and oppressed by the nation of Midian. Supplication. Israel realizes we done screwed up, and they call out to God for help. And then salvation. God calls Gideon to free Israel from the Midianites. He does that, but then again, apostasy starts because he breaks God's law and he succumbs to the temptation of power, which will eventually lead Israel to turn away from God again. The cycle repeats itself all the way through the book of Judges. So what are the positives that we can, use, we can gain inspiration from Gideon's life? Well, God's calling Gideon was part of a bigger plan. That means your calling will have an effect on others beyond just yourself. God calls Gideon. Gideon doubts himself because he is oppressed and he thinks he is not capable. God triumphs over the Midian, or Gideon triumphs over the Midianites. How does that relate to us? Well, God calls us. We doubt ourselves based on our circumstance and our capabilities. God supplants that doubt with his strength. He fills that void, which allows you to accomplish what he has asked you to do. And then God's calling triumphs in our lives. And if you're doing it correctly, you give the glory back to him because it's rightfully his, right? But there's also stuff to learn from Gideon, mistakes that we can learn from to not do the same stuff again. Gideon goes too far with his calling. Obedience is necessary to accomplish what God wants, and you can't have obedience if you don't have humility. Humility fuels obedience. It comes in that order. First humility, then obedience. Gideon breaks God's law, and he succumbs to power. One must acknowledge and maintain the mindset of a servant. I say acknowledge because in order to be a servant, you have to know your place in the relationship but also maintain because when things are going great, don't take that glory away from God. Remember that he's the reason you're able to do anything. So you need to keep that mindset to keep the mindset of having and being a servant. So Gideon was a hero. He was a biblical icon, right? He freed the nation of Israel. He did all these great and wonderful things. And, but as you can see, Gideon was still a person. He still was good and bad in his life. He was not perfect. He doubted himself before the calling even began. And once he accomplished the calling, he took it too far and made mistakes along the way. You're going to do the same thing. It's going to happen in your life. This series isn't about showing you how crappy you are compared to these people. That's not what it's about. It's about showing you that these people are just like you. These people were going about their lives, doing nothing. God places a calling on them, and they were able to do great and wonderful things. Why? Because God gave them that strength to do it. The, the quest for you, as you're going to see throughout this series, I think the theme will be apparent, is the glory goes to God. And I think, I hope, and I pray that after today you will know that it goes to him because it's rightfully his because his strength allows you to do that. Because if you're like me and you doubt a lot about your own capabilities, you know that God is with you, God goes before you, my strength is his and his is mine. It's, 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 it's his glory to have, right? It's only his and rightfully his, because his strength is what allows us to accomplish it. And I hope that throughout the series, you're going to see that. Our bottom line today is being a real hero 
is letting people see the God in you and not just the you in you. So when you're doing God's calling, when whatever part of the process you're in, make sure that people are seeing the God in you when you're doing that. They're not just seeing you. Give the glory to him first, last, and every way in between. And to me, there's nothing more heroic than that. This podcast has been recorded live at Crosswalk Community Church. Services are held every Sunday at 10 a.m. at 925 South Telegraph Road in Monroe, Michigan. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Community Church Podcast.